is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We've got AstraZeneca. It looks like we've got another, what, fourth vaccine now? Yeah, well, it still has to get emergency use authorization. Right. But the 79% headline number is a good number. This is good news. Right, 79% efficacy, as you said. Uh, so hopefully there'll be more confidence in using it. But then you've got, we just talked about it, New Jersey, New York, like they're, you know, New Jersey specifically pausing further rollbacks of restrictions as it's watching its COVID cases uh, once again surge to the highest in the nation. Yeah, some really concerning numbers as well. All right, so that's going on. You also have Germany doing rollbacks. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on that remind you that this is not a straight path forward. Let's get into it with uh, a voice that we've talked to many times over the past year, Dr. Iman Abu Zaid. She is CEO and co-founder at Incredible Health. Her company connects hospitals with nurses and other healthcare workers. And she joins us once again on the phone in San Francisco. Dr. Abu Zaid, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. Well, it's good to have you back. We were trying to make sense of like where to start with you. So tell me what you think are the important headlines, uh, you know, across the U.S. globally that you think our audience needs to be focusing on. Uh, so uh, I think the, the, some a critical set of headlines is around the healthcare workers themselves. Um, and so what we've done is we've published a, a report recently that looks at the impact COVID-19 has had on healthcare workers, specifically nurses, over the last 12 months. And there's been a, a whole set of interesting findings. Um, the reason it's important is because these healthcare workers are the ones delivering care and taking care of COVID patients. Um, they're also being exposed on the front lines to COVID. Uh, and, you know, healthcare workers are the biggest group of labor. Uh, it's the biggest labor sector in the country today. Um, and so, so that's why I think it's important to highlight. Um, there's a few important findings that I want to share with the audience. Um, one is that what we've seen is that actual compensation for healthcare workers has gone up uh, in the last 12 months. It's probably been seen, healthcare workers have seen the biggest increases in compensation, both salary and signing bonuses, compared to any other previous time in history. And a lot of that is driven by the increased demand uh, for them. Um, the second area that's interesting is the turnover has also increased. Mm. You know, uh, nurses and healthcare workers are leaving the workforce uh, in higher numbers than ever before. A lot of the, a lot of nurses are taking advantage of early retirement. Um, they're also uh, leaving due to fatigue and stress. And then the third area that's important is how healthcare workers are perceiving their local communities. In that, 73% don't feel appreciated. Uh, by their local communities because their local communities are not necessarily following COVID guidelines. Um, wow. So I'll pause there and we can go, go deeper. Yeah, so some, some, some really mixed news in the report. Um, let, let's, let's start just with the turnover because, yep. look, it's not surprising given what healthcare workers have had to endure over the last you know 13 months when it comes to the pandemic that there could be a lot of them who are very tired. Uh, how much higher is turnover right now when it comes to nurses and what needs to be done to make sure that this doesn't continue? So chief nursing officers and chief HR officers, uh, 80% of them report that uh, the turnover has increased and it's increased by about 5%. Now keep in mind, nurse turnover already was around 20% even before the pandemic. So now it's gone up to about 25%. 
Um, the key drivers of that are, are exactly what you stated, the fatigue, the anxiety, the stress that comes from uh, coping with the pandemic and, and um, being exposed to COVID. Uh, and then the other areas, just, you know, just nurses taking advantage of, of, of the options they have, including things like early retirement. Hey, one thing I want to ask you, um, Dr. Abuzaid, is that what you talk about is turnover, and there's a fairly high turnover, as you just mentioned, with nurses, but we're seeing more of it uh, because of the past year. Are you concerned because of turnover or burnout that, especially, I go back to the headline Tim and I talked about, where you know New Jersey is now seeing their case count surge to the highest in the nation, and there are hot spots once again around the country. You know, we've had a lot of conversations with with heads of the Atlantic Health System, with Northwell Health, the CEO joined us, and they constantly talk about this plateauing of numbers that we're not going down. So I do wonder, are you concerned at all about us not having the support staff, the nursing staff, that if we get another spike? that could be problematic. Yeah, we, I, we are concerned about that. And that's been, you know, every time a, a, a new surge happens, the staffing situation and the hiring situation becomes more, more challenging. Because uh, each time there's a surge, there's a set of people who, there's a set of healthcare workers that permanently leave the workforce. And I'm wondering, are you setting up for another surge? Because I, I've, what I love about talking to you, Iman, is that you are seeing what's going on around the country and kind of a bigger picture. And I'm wondering, there's a lot of optimism. It's spring here in New York and people feel like things are starting to open up again. But I feel like, again, step forward, step back, because we are still in a pandemic. And what are you seeing? How how concerned should we be about maybe another wave based on what you're yeah. seeing and the conversations so, you're having? Right, so we are concerned for, for more surges in specific states and specific locations. Um, and the, the, the reason for that or the impact is there's two, several reasons. One, I think we're going, in, a, in the next few weeks, we're going to be running into um, uh, Americans not wanting to take the vaccine. And by the way, that includes nurses. Our study does show that 33% of nurses have chosen not to take the vaccine because hmm. they're not, they don't yeah. feel like they, they, you know, they've just chosen not to. Um, the other, and then the second area, is, the second area of concern is the new variants. The, the new COVID variants and, and, and how, uh, how much more uh, spread, that they'll be spreading more. Um, that's the other area of concern. Right, we've all talked about that. Like how many vaccines do we, how much of the population do we need to see what percentage vaccinated in order to get ahead of those variants? Dr. Abu Zaid, you referred to vaccine hesitancy among healthcare workers that, that you're finding at Incredible Health. Give us the statistic because Carol and I talked last week about a Washington Post poll that found that more, in, more than four in 10 healthcare workers have not been vaccinated. Why are you seeing it at Incredible Health? Yeah, so what, we're, what, what we've discovered in our study that 33% of nurses are saying they don't plan to take the vaccine at all, at all even when one becomes available to them. Why? And, you know, the healthcare workers were first in line, so effectively they're, they, they, they all have, uh, for the most part, access to the vaccine. I think the skepticism uh, and this hesitation is mostly driven by disinformation, honestly. Um, a lot of that's being driven by social media disinformation. Uh, rumors and myths like uh, the vaccine is going to change your DNA and kind of th things like that are, that are just completely false um, are honestly to blame. Uh, it, it is a bit shocking to see healthcare workers uh, uh, kind of fall for this, for this disinformation. But regardless, that, that, that just highlights the need for uh, much better and much clearer public health communication about how, vac how the vaccines work, um, what, what the risks are and what the risks are not. 
uh, and really clarifying that um, as a whole. And, and I think it's the hospitals and health systems, the employers that are responsible for this communication, as well as, you know, our governments, both federal, state and, and local governments, in really communicating uh, the safety of the vaccine as well as the purpose of it. So what could hospitals be doing better to do this? And what could governments be doing better to communicate this? Because this is really surprising to me. Medicine is, is evidence-based. It's science-based. And these healthcare professionals are, are not following the science. You're right. It, it is it is really surprising. I think what, what's going to be required is like a cohesive and clear campaign, communication campaign, honestly, uh, about about the science. I mean, look, it's been challenging for all of us, including the healthcare workers, because the science, it does change from week to week. The CDC guidelines do change month to month, um, you know, because this is an evolving situation and scientists are learning more and more about the pandemic and more research papers are getting published and so on. Right. So it's not it's not surprising, I guess, that we're kind of, that we you know, that, that, that entire groups of people may be out of date. Uh, I think it just shows that we really need to have a consistent, clear, frequent camp- uh, campaigns and communication on, on what the correct messaging is. You know, it's interesting, and I was looking for numbers. I was at the AMA website, but trying to get an idea of how many doctors have actually uh, taken the vaccine. And I remember talking, I can't think of the guest, but um, they oversee a, a physician's group, and there was some even hesit- hesitancy among doctors early on in terms of taking the vaccine. But I do feel like this is a crucial part of us all moving forward, uh, Dr. Abu Zaid, that healthcare workers in particular, you know, you would think that they're front and center understanding um, what the vaccine is about. So it's it's a little worrisome that uh, there's some nervousness among that community. Absolutely. I mean, the numbers among the general public uh, is, is 45% of Americans are hesitant about taking the vaccine. So. You know, we're going to start running into this issue in, in, in a matter of weeks here, especially as, 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 a, as a supply of vaccine continues to grow and the logistics and the rollout continues right. to smooth it. Does it mean we don't get to herd immunity? Potentially? Potentially. I mean, if it's not solved, if, this, if, if not enough people take the vaccine, that's correct. That's the, that's the risk that we're running. So how are you planning for this at, at Incredible Health? I mean, how are you planning for staffing, for availability of employees? And we only have about 30 seconds left. Yeah, so we're, we have several initiatives in place. We're continuing our national expansion um, through, throughout throughout the country. Um, and we're, we're, we have a presence in 13 states. We're also adding product features, including uh, a mental, uh, you know, mental health features, uh, a, a, a vibrant nurse community where nurses can support and advise each other. So we're continuing with our product roadmaps and, and our geographic expansion of adding more and more, more health systems and nurses to the platform. All right. Well, good to know. And really great to hear about your survey. Um, worrisome, though, some of those uh, data points. Dr. Iman Abu Zaid, she is co-founder and chief executive officer at Incredible Health on the phone in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really disconcerting to have people mm-hmm. who do deal with patients, who people who do deal with medicine and do deal with giving shots be so concerned about getting the vaccine and the message that sends to patients also. Yeah, and I do wonder and worry about the impact that that may may have in in order for us to reopen up our economies and really get to that herd immunity. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So never having to say you're sorry. Nope, we're not talking about love story. Uh, I did see something on it over the weekend. That's why it's in my head. I thought you were... I should turn my microphone on. I thought you were talking about Justin Bieber. (laughs) 
That too. Yeah. Nice. Been nice. stuck in my head since reading this story. <laughs> so we're, what we're talking about, though, is the new rule of politics. So let's get into this story. It's going to be featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine out later this week. Story already online and on the Bloomberg. Let's get to Bloomberg News. Political reporter Ryan Teague Beckwith on the phone in Washington, D.C., along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Axis line in Brooklyn. Sorry, not sorry, Joel. Yeah, and and this is a story that Ryan, um, when he when he kind of mentioned it in in passing, um, I was like, you can go ahead and write that story like right now. Um, <laughs> the world needs to hear it, and and I think you know it's really rooted in the the governor Andrew Cuomo's um, recent turbulence, um, but it's even bigger than that. Um, so Ryan, to walk us through the art of the apology or lack thereof in politics now. Yeah, if you think about the traditional apology, and I think if you're uh, of a certain age, you might be able to picture Jimmy Swaggart with the tears streaming down his face um, uh, on stage. The, the, the book that I uh, was talking with the author is called The Art of the Public Grovel by Susan Wise Bauer, and she um, identified sort of certain commonalities in these very public apologies that we specifically have demanded over the years from politicians for their sexual misbehavior. Um, whether that's cheating or harassment or whatever. Uh, and the first is that they get up in public and, and they give it in person um, to show how serious that, that they are, not through a statement or whatever. Uh, and often they had uh, on one side their spouse and on the other side their pastor um, or other religious leader. And uh, then they begin by acknowledging what they did wrong, um, specifically apologizing directly to the victim um, as well as to their spouse, usually. Um, sometimes they would go further and apologize to uh, other people, the people of, you know that I represent, the voters, whatever. Uh, Mark Stanford, his apology just went on and on. He was apologizing to his friend Tom. He apologized to people of congressional district. He apologized to people of faith in South Carolina who might find others questioning their faith because he had acted close. So... Um, and so, then, and then they, and then they end by uh, acknowledging they'll do better in the future. So, what happened? Because we didn't hear "sorry" from Donald Trump very frequently, and and we haven't heard. It depends on how you define apology when it comes to what's happening with with Governor Andrew Cuomo right now. Right. So, um, when I was mentioning this uh, to to other experts of the apology, at the I said something about Donald Trump's apology after the Access Hollywood tape, and they said, like, the, the fact that you're calling this an apology is, like, part of the problem here. Like, Donald, Donald Trump, after the Access Hollywood, that is one of two occasions where he sort of apologized for something, the other being his Charlottesville remarks, which he then kind of walked back. Um, and, and, and he got up, basically, and he said, you know, look, like, I might have, you know, said a few things. Um, but it's not nearly as bad as what Bill Clinton did, and Hillary Clinton was right there with him, and he pivoted straight into an attack. So he didn't really acknowledge what he said, and uh, he minimized it. So that's one way in which, like, we are seeing somewhat of an apology. Like, with Cuomo, it's leading to a lesser case. It's like, you've, you've been charged with manslaughter, and you get up and you go, look, I might have pushed a few people around. You know, like, you're not you're not acknowledging what you did. Wrong. And like, Cuomo did that. Yeah. He started saying... I may have made some women uncomfortable. That's not what he's accused of. Well, well, the thing is, Ryan, you know, in this frenetic news cycle, like we're all quickly moving on to the next thing. In many ways, this can be a very smart strategy. If you just kind of ride it out, you know, everybody might move on. 
and you'll get to hold your seat. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it depends. It also requires a certain sense of shamelessness. Um, Ralph Northam apologized, and then he also didn't resign. He just hung on. And I think that Trump showed that that strategy can work, that the the cost, the political cost for to other people of removing you from office is just really high. It's really hard. Cuomo can basically just, you know, hold on to his seat and say, I'm not going anywhere. And the legislature is going to have to do a lot of work to remove him from office. Someone is going to have to defeat him in a primary. Someone is going to have to defeat him in a general election. It's a lot easier to just say, hey, you know, whatever, and move on. But the difference is that he could have apologized. He could have said, I did, I did things wrong. I'm sorry. Here's what I did wrong. Here's the people that I've wronged. Didn't really do that. By the end of the original press conference in which he was giving his apology, he was already saying, wait for the facts. And, and that's an indirect way of saying basically the same thing that a politician who says these women are all liars says. Like, if you say wait for the facts, then you're saying what these people are saying is not factual. And if you're saying that, then you're not really apologizing. And that's the problem. So, Ryan, one of the other things that I thought was really surprising in, in your story is the idea that the traditional apology, political apology, was actually uniquely American and that we might be coming more like the rest of the world. Can you, can you tell us what, what that actually means? Because I've always thought public apologies were a pretty universal idea. I think that the format in which um, we had required people to apologize in the past was very stylized and was very much um, rooted in the sort of uh, Christian confessions of sin, um, you know, within certain churches where, where you sort of stand up and publicly apologize. I think that's one reason why the politicians we think of who did the best at this uh, format, uh, Bill Clinton just did great. Oh, you know, biting the lower lip and I had sinned. You know, like that, uh, that kind of apology. It's a very specific American requirement. The other reason for this, the other reason why we sort of ask, if you go to another country and, and a waiter or waitress brings you food, right. and you say thank you, like, people look at you funny, right? And, and, and I had an argument with some, some people from another country about this. They're like, they're being paid to bring you food. Why are you saying thank you? And it's because we as Americans are uncomfortable with power differentials. And so right. when someone is accused of this kind of behavior, it seems like they're taking advantage of their social situation. And the only way to really recuperate that is for them to level down, to, yeah. to apologize and put themselves in there. Well, it's an interesting read and certainly a sign of the times. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much. Ryan Teague Beckwith of Bloomberg News, along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Leon Black, he's the Wall Street billionaire. He uh, appeared to be a main client of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. He is stepping down as CEO of Apollo Global Management. And Tim, this is months ahead of schedule. Yeah, it is. Shanali Basak is Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us now on the phone from right here in our New York City bureau. But we are doing social distancing, so Shanali is yes. not here in the studio She's with somewhere. us. Even though I've seen her many in times In an isolation booth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, Shanali, as Carol mentioned, this happened months ahead of schedule. How big of a surprise was this to you? Listen, the fact that he stepped back was not a surprise from CEO. It was months ahead of schedule. That was a surprise. But he is also stepping back, Tim, as chairman right. of Apollo. And remember, that is a big step back. He is stepping back from the firm in such a big way. He's led the firm for 31 years. Uh, he said in a letter to the board today that the press around his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein has been, uh, has been a real strain on 
him and has taken a toll on his health. And so he is looking to take a step back from the firm and from the spotlight. Why, though? Is it more about health? Is it more about stepping back from the spotlight? A little of both, it looks like, Carol. I, I asked this today, too, because the question is, investors, when before he stepped down as CEO, investors really had put a lot of heat on Apollo and had really threatened to not be investing more with Apollo. Apollo's own performance has been really sluggish when you look at its performance next to its peers. So clearly, investors and other stakeholders wanted answers, and Apollo has been making very, very drastic changes. Uh, listen, the relationship between uh, Leon Black and Jeffrey Epstein, $158 million worth of payments was at a very big scale, even though a law firm found that there was no evidence of wrongdoing on Leon Black's part. So uh, it's something certainly that had a lot of lingering questions even after the report had came out and clarified that Leon Black uh, had no engagement with any of the criminal activity that Jeffrey Epstein was involved with. Uh, Shanali, what's been the reaction on Wall Street? Not necessarily from from companies in terms of stock price movements, but specifically from your sources who you're talking to. Were they as shocked as as many people were? Yes, in the sense that this really was Leon Black's firm. For him to step back as CEO and become chairman, that was something a lot of people had expected. For him to take this mega step back from the firm was a lot less expected. He is going to remain the single largest shareholder of Apollo. So that is one link he will still have. But from now on out, we can expect a much different firm ahead. And now the new CEO, Mark Rowan, it's really going to be up to him to show what that looks like. As an aside, Jay Clayton, the former chairman of the SEC, will become now the chair of Apollo, and the board will be expanded. So we have a different firm on our hands. Hey, so what about Josh Harris, right? So he was seen as having, what, a closer relationship with Leon Black and deemed to be a more likely successor, according to our reporting. What does it mean that he wasn't chosen to be the new CEO? And if he leaves the firm, is that a problem? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's something that's definitely uh, a big question on Wall Street. Right now, he is one of the firm's co-founders. He is very much involved in the firm, but he has a lot of side gigs, right? I mean, including uh, co-owner of um, a bunch of sports teams. Mm -hmm. So we know Josh Harris has a life on the side. Uh, Apollo is looking to merge with Athene, which is Mm -hmm. a big insurance company it owns, and that was really the brainchild of Mark Rowan. So more and more, you're seeing the co-founder, Mark Rowan, put a bigger and bigger stamp on the firm. And, you know, consistency is not a bad thing. The the face of the firm, even underneath that level, is changing quite a bit. We've seen big deals uh, come out of the co-presidents, the new, uh, sorry, the new uh, co-heads of the private equity group, which are Matt Nord and David Samber, and even seeing the younger generations start to do deals and put their stamp on the firm is interesting as well. What about when it comes to Jay Clayton, who you mentioned, of course, former chair of the SEC, uh, has been a member of the company's board, but now becoming non-executive chairman. What does he do at Apollo? Yeah, I think what people want to see is more independence on the board of Apollo and a firm that, you know, what started really as a private firm uh, and then even as a public firm in public markets after it went public, uh, it was still quite secretive, right? And it was still 
had such a, such a huge amount of its economics tied to its founders, they're changing even the voting structure of the firm and, and the share structure so that it's one vote, one share. And so as that happens, as it becomes more institutionalized, to have someone like Jay Clayton kind of at the, the helm as chair helps make it a more professional firm. Uh, and it, it, it brings it more in the ranks of a firm that more institutional investors may own. Of course, that will depend on its performance. And also another thing people pointed out today is the ability to return dividends at the same mm-hmm. pace as Blackstone, where the shares are up 13% this year. Well, and there is, I feel like, a, almost a, some symbolism or maybe a sign being sent by Jay Clayton being named to this position because, listen, this is a guy with incredible stature on Wall Street, the whole financial community. There is an assumption you could make almost Shanali that he wouldn't have done this if he didn't feel comfortable staying at the firm. Just got about 20 seconds here. Yeah, that's that's the signal. This is a big new institutional firm with a much more independent board. And that's the signal that they're trying to send to society. Well, great analysis. Um, really appreciate it. Shanali Basik, she's Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. Whenever there's a big financial bank story, man, I'm always getting a message from her in the morning that just kind of puts it into perspective. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Let's bring in Michael Sheldon. He is Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at Hightower RDM Financial, based in Westport, Connecticut, and that's where he is on the phone. Michael, good to have you back. How are you? Uh, good. Thanks very much. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, good to hear from you. Yeah, what's going on in your world? What, in terms of investment stories, market stories, are kind of front and center for you? Well, I, th- I thought it would be interesting to put things in perspective. Um, as you know, as you well know, tomorrow is going to be the one-year anniversary of the market bottom that we had back in uh, 2020. Right. Wow. Back then, uh, back in March of 2020, things didn't look very good. But we had the fastest decline into a bear market. And over the past 12 months following that, we had the biggest rally in the post-World War II period. So I thought it would help to put things in perspective. Now, what, what should investors expect in the second year of a bull market? So in the second year of bull markets, we look back at all the bull markets going back to World War II. The markets have posted a positive gain 86% of the time with an average gain of 11%. So I think looking ahead, investors are looking at, they're starting to talk a little bit about inflation. They're talking about interest rates. But the big story will continue to be the economic expansion. And we're constructive on the markets overall, but we think investors may need to moderate their return expectations a little bit in the year ahead. Okay, so what do you mean by that? What do you mean by moderate expectations? What's a realistic expectation for an investor to have this year? Well, I think we, we're looking for further gains. We try not to put a level on the S&P 500. It's really almost impossible to target what the actual level of the S&P 500 will be in a given year. But we try and look at the economic fundamentals. So we look at things like employment and GDP, consumer spending, business spending. Um, and are those things, those metrics heading in the right direction? And we think they are right now. For example, the unemployment rate right now is around 6.2%, and that's projected to fall to about 4.5% in the next couple of years. Corporate profits were negative last year, but they're currently forecast to rise about 25% this year and 15% next year. So overall... Off of are, a bad low, right? Off, off of a pretty deep low. That, that's correct. And if you look at GDP, uh, GDP numbers were obviously... We had a major, major decline in GDP last year. Now things have really turned around quite a bit. And it's hard to believe, but either this quarter or next quarter, GDP will once again rise to an all-time high. So um, there are still some risks out there. Consumer confidence, for example, has really not recaptured a lot of its gains. 
And the weekly jobless claims at 770,000 are still pretty elevated, but I think the majority of economic data is relatively positive right now. But I do wonder, you know, I don't know if we can compare the com- the recovery after the financial crisis versus the recovery a- after COVID. Uh, you know, it does feel like it's going to be a fairly strong bounce back, uh, especially the second half of the year. Is that how you see it? Is there similarities or is it vastly different from the recovery that we got after the financial crisis? Uh, well, they were very two very different mm-hmm. events. Um, the downturn that we had in 2008, 2009 was really a financial crisis led by uh, problems with the banks and, and lending to people who didn't deserve to have loans. In this situation, it was more of sort of an ex- exogenous healthcare-related scare that caused the economy to shut down. So it, it's a very different type of event. I think that's why once the economy opened up, we were able to have uh, a more rapid recovery in the economy and you don't have necessarily the kind of scars that we had in the financial system, which held the economy back for several years, um, looking at 2008, 2009. What are the scars in the financial system that we're going to see on the, the other side of this? You mentioned the unemployment rate. And, and, and one thing that I keep in mind when we talk about the unemployment rate is the labor force participation rate and the way that so many people have dropped out of the workforce over the last year. It's disproportionately affected women, who many of them whom have had to stay at home as kids have not been in school in person. What does that scarring look like, and how does it manifest in the markets? Um, well, I commented earlier on the uh, weekly jobless claims, which are around 770,000, mm-hmm. and that's on a weekly basis. So that really is historically very extended. It's a very high number. Mm. But you're right that the unemployment rate doesn't really capture some of the additional workers who have dropped out of labor force, and there are also workers who are actually receiving pandemic unemployment uh, relief, which is not really captured in the numbers. So there's a long ways to go to recapture all of the lost workers but given the momentum that the economy has it looks like things should continue to recover as long as the vaccine rollout goes on track and the rest of the global economy recovers uh, as well they'll probably be a little later than the u.s so i'm just i was quick doing some tally the s p is up 76 percent from that market bottom one year ago nasdaq's up 95 percent, so a doubling and the Russell, because we've been watching that small cap space, is up 126%. Mind you, they were beaten up and just <laughs> smacked down right. in a big way. So so where do we, Michael, where do we go then? Where do you want to put, put some new bets? And just got about 40 seconds here. Sure. Well, I think the important story for 2021, as opposed to the last several years, it was really mainly about technology. I think you're going to see more balanced participation in the market. Uh, you're going to see not only technology, but you're going to see the industrials, the financials, and other parts of the market. And it won't just be large cap, it'll be mid cap and small cap. And I think possibly for the first time in many years, you may finally start to see foreign markets uh, participate uh, alongside with the U.S. market. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at Hightower RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, listen, I mean, some of the numbers we're going to probably be seeing over the next six months are going to be like, what? And you just got to remember where we're coming from. One year ago. Yeah. Remember that, March 23rd, 2020. It was pretty rough. All right, but that was the beginning of the bounce back. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.